Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Object Theology Podcast. My name is Andy Schmidt. I'm here with Pastor Nick Gibson, and we're back doing a podcast on Jesus and creeds, catechisms, and some of the the two controversial clauses in the Apostles' Creed. Right, right. Uh, More specifically, not more specifically, but one of the ones that we're going to really hit on is whether or not Jesus descended into hell, because this is kind of where this all started. I bought this book, if you're watching on YouTube, this is the book. It's called Creeds, Confessions, and Catechisms by Chad Van Dixhorn. Uh, this is a book by this is a book by Crossway, uh, and so I bought this. Crossway's um, been doing a great job of making very attractive looking book books. Yeah, yeah, it's it's great, and the formatting and everything is awesome. And so it just has a bunch of different creeds, confessions, and catechisms. So I started from the beginning, and I get to the in the beginning. Mm-hmm. I am at the Apostles' Creed, right. and. In the Apostles' Creed, I'll read it for everybody because there's some people who probably haven't heard it. Okay, yes. I'll read it and then we'll talk about. This is the the either the most or second most adopted s- brief statement of the Christian faith's doctrines mm-hmm. in the last two thousand years. Yes, yeah. Mystery Church. Um, okay, so here's what it says: I believe in God the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only begotten begotten son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, and descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. With From there he shall ju- come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Okay, so... I read that, and I've read the Apostles' Creed, and, and there's two different versions of the Apostles' Creed, uh, I think, or something. Because yeah. when, I, when I've read the Apostles' Creed for most of my life, it doesn't say that he descended into hell. Yeah. The, one, the ones I've read, it said he ascended into heaven, right? Isn't there two different versions? So one of the ways that phrase is translated is that he descended to the dead. Right. So it would be, he was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. Mm-hmm. On the third day, he rose again. Yeah. So there's always a reference to the his rising again, the resurrection. Yeah. But this, every, every, the versions that have existed from, say, 340 AD mm-hmm. through to the present have had this in them. Mm-hmm. There have been some Protestant denominations that, that don't feel quite as, as sacred a connection to these, that they cannot be changed, yeah. that just have just taken it out. Okay. Okay. So, okay. So I guess to format and structure this podcast, I wanted to read that to begin with. There's a lot of questions that come out of these creeds. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not just going to be talking about this one creed. We're going to be talking about the importance and significance of creeds, confessions, and catechisms yeah. um, in general. I think a lot of younger Christians uh, are actually becoming more and more attracted to to uh, more liturgy and to more high church structure it's and so structure. as the world becomes more disorganized yeah right the idea that you'd do something organized makes more sense makes more both sense emotionally mm-hmm. and dealing with anxiety mm-hmm. but also like just placing yourself in the world and understanding what's what's true right and so i think i think to talk about these because i think a lot of evangelical churches like a non-denominational low church they're not really we don't go to church on Sunday and read through the Apostles' Creed every yeah. single. We don't have a, we sing songs, we do a sermon, we sing songs again, and then we leave. And so there's not a bunch of structure. And so... Which feels like a crappy liturgy. 
Yeah. Right. It was that was yeah. created in the seventies by seeker churches. Yeah. To try to get people to come back to church who had left. Yeah. Which I think was a noble desire. Yeah. And it, in some ways it really worked in a lot of ways, yeah. but what it's offering was thin right? and our right. liturgy isn't forming us deeply right. in a world in which we're now becoming a minority. Right. And if you're going to be a minority in a world, your whatever's forming you has to be pretty deep. Yeah. And, and as I started to read through these creeds and confessions, I started to, I was kind of like, these are very basic things that this is talking about, but holy crap, I didn't know what I was talking about. Like I, I didn't have a really good way of of forming that thought on yeah. whatever, whether it's the Trinity, whether it's the, the function of the Holy Spirit, they were just very straightforward. And so, yeah. um, cause the one I'm reading through now is the Augsburg confession, confession which, yeah. uh, Luther was, was a part of creating, right? Augsburg. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah. Philip Melanchthon is the one known for writing it, but mm -hmm. it was part of that Lutheran movement and Luther's theology had a lot of influence on it. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So let's start with the apostles creed. Uh, the first question I have is, who wrote the Apostles' Creed? Yeah, the answer is not the Apostles, right? <laughs> um, so the so the Apostles sued whoever wrote this. Yeah. It was a huge loss. So the idea, the Apostles' Creed is not a, a creed literally written by the Apostles, mm -hmm. but it's meant to be a summary of the apostolic teaching. Okay. Now it's important to recognize that all, of, almost virtually all of the creeds were published as answers to um, controversies that there were councils about. Um, and so they, the, the creeds are formulated the way they are to answer questions and to rule out false mm -hmm. doctrines. Mm -hmm. So specifically the Apostles' Creed, um, there's what's called the Old Roman form, mm -hmm. which the first version of that comes from 337 AD. And, but the people believe that it was recited basically in that Old Roman form since about 140 AD. Mm -hmm. So it's real old. I mean, mm -hmm. we're talking about the generation after the Apostles. Right, right. And then what's interesting about it is I was reading it, knowing that it's that old, it's that old. how a lot of the truths in it Every truth in it, mm -hmm. I mean, depending on how we look at some of the things that we talk about today, the church, I guess the church, a lot of churches through the last 2000 years haven't shifted on these things. I mean, you would usually through philosophy and things like that, you can even look back 200 years and a certain philosophy will, will have evolved in something completely different than what it started as. Yeah. Not that, not Christianity. No, it doesn't the, seem these like creeds, the, the, the fact that we have an authoritative scripture mm -hmm. and we have these creeds. Mm -hmm. Um, with the addition of some things relative to the church and, mm -hmm. and apostolic succession or like the clergy mm -hmm. or whatever, um, has held us. So like in each generation, we'll, mm -hmm. the way we'll integrate with the culture of that generation or what's going on or the thought around us will change a lot. And it did mm -hmm. even in the earliest generations of the church, mm -hmm. but we're always reasoning from these truths. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you talked about when it was written, I think. Yeah. Um, so that old Roman form goes back to yeah. 140. But then there, the, the creed that we have today is sometimes referred to as the dated creed mm -hmm. or the like reformulated version that dates to about 359 is the first time we see it in someone's okay. writings. Um, and so that was uh, the ba a baptismal creed, most mm -hmm. people think, around 400. So like you would memorize that creed and recite it at your baptism. Which is something that I think needs to we really need come back because I hear some of these these uh, I was I was watching my wife showed me a a, a little video of um, of baptisms happening in a church on the west coast that I won't name but that's popular and the the lady's conf like her confession of faith before she got baptized was that she believes that God wants her to help save animals and then they baptized her. <laughs> and I was like, wow, I don't think that that person's a, a Christian. And like that, yeah. that's a problem. At, or that at or, least is not a proper baptismal confession. Exactly. To believe that in your vocation based on exactly. your experience and stuff that that's 
that's right. a vocation God has for you. Right. That's fine. Hey. It's just not your baptismal confession. Hey, can I give live updates? Sure. Optivenetwork.com, which everybody listening to this should go to, just got another uh, subscriber. So shout Ooh. out to to whoever that person was who probably doesn't want to be named on the yeah. podcast, but another subscriber. Uh, go ahead. Sorry. That. Yeah. So, okay. So that was a baptismal formula. Mm-hmm. I do. And I, that is something. I mean, this these are conversations to have at our churches. Like, what, like what should be our confession at baptism? Like yeah. at our church, I, yeah. I say to people, um, have you repented of your sins and right. put your trust in Jesus right. as savior and Lord. And they have to affirm that. Mm -hmm. And I do in some sense think that that is the baptismal formula Mm -hmm. that, that does that confession of Jesus as savior and Lord, Mm -hmm. that he died for our sins, Mm -hmm. rose for our justification, that we're, we're becoming his in this ritual is fundamental. The only thing I also, we also require people to do, to to do a written testimony testimony, so that we know they understand the shape of the gospel. Right. I would only add to that is what I think what they did at uh, Bethlehem when Baptist in Minneapolis, I think, is there was something in there where they had to verbally say that they submit to the teachings of Christ, that they're submitting mm-hmm. their life to to Jesus and right. his teachings and the scriptures. Yeah, I mean, because that's part of the Great Commission, right? To, yeah. to um, learn to obey everything Jesus commanded. Yeah. Right, right. Okay, so just to clarify, so that's the history of the Apostles' Creed. Yeah. Now, similarly, as that was getting worked out, right. By by a th- and 325 was the Nicene Council. Yeah. And yep. soon after that, you had, had what was called the Creed of Nicaea. That creed is in some ways even more popular right. or was for a long time than the Apostles' Creed right. because it was published more directly from yeah. a, a two councils, the Nicene Council and the, Con- the Council of Constantinople. It's, it's, it's the way I read it was that was the very next one in this book mm-hmm. was it was the Apostles' Creed on steroids. Juiced up a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it was, they, they were trying to combat some philosophies. Yeah. Arianism and, in particular, yeah. the idea that Jesus was created. He wasn't mm-hmm. eternal and of the same substance with the father. Right. Yeah. Um, kind of, it's kind of a view that some Mormons have held that Jesus, Jesus is a created being the first among the created beings, but, but not co-eternal in their, in his existence with God. Which is a heresy, which is a heresy, right? right? I mean, that, that you can't believe that. Yes. Um, and so after the Nicene Creed is the Athanasian Creed, which is a creed attributed to Athanasius, though that is somewhat doubtful, but it basically has a lot of the same content as the apostolic and Nicene creed, Mm -hmm. but it also has an anathemas in it and very stern warnings um, Mm -hmm. that you do not belong to Christ. If you believe this or that thing, it's really, yeah, I was going to say, it's really interesting when you go from one to the next to the next, how they all start that this is seems when I'm reading through them, I'm like, this is how theology started. Mm -hmm. Like they're just Grow, it's like growing every mm-hmm. time. Each one is growing on the other one. And right. and as I read through the introductions that the author wrote, right away, sir, like they're trying to get at certain things to make yes. sure that they're trying to like make up for the some Nicene of the issues. The Creed and the Athanasian Creed were very clearly directed at what was usually Christological and Trinitarian controversies. Yeah. And a lot of the Christ, Christological, who is, who is Jesus the Christ really right. Right. is a Trinitarian question right. because the question is, is this person, Jesus the Christ, the second person of the Trinity, like the God eternal yeah. and everlasting from eternity past. And those questions came up in the Arian controversies and in other, and there's a number of different heresies, mm-hmm. um, like Patropassianism, Eutychianism, there's mm-hmm. like a whole list of them. Yeah. And they were just different ways people were trying to sort out, um, God being three persons mm-hmm. 
in mm. one substance, right. which feels like a paradox, if not a contradiction. Right. And then that Jesus is fully God and fully man simultaneously without reduction of either. Yeah. Those two things are just very hard to conceptualize. And so people right. try to figure out how to explain them. Mm. And in doing so, they would deny one thing or the other right. implicitly. And so whenever that would happen, the church would be like, well, listen, I get you're trying to say this thing. But you got to remember but this. But you like, yeah. you, now you've minimized right. the other thing and that's not okay. Mm -hmm. And so all these creeds are basically meant to say that. Now, when you get to the Chalcedonian definition or the mm -hmm. creed of Chalcedon, Mm -hmm. um, that isn't usually referred to as a creed because after the Athanasian creed, they call it the definition. I was yeah, wondering why they did. Yeah. That. In the councils, they said, we're not going to publish any more creeds. These mm -hmm. creeds are sufficient. The they three, contain our the, faith the, uh, and we don't need a hundred thousand creeds. Yeah. The apostles creed, Nicene creed. Right, because they wanted Athanasian one Catholic, creed. holy Catholic and apostolic church. They wanted yeah. one church that recited one creed. One, and yeah. so they already had two. Yeah. <laughs> right. And the Athanasian right. creeds, they really had three. Mm -hmm. They don't need one at every council. Right. And so they're like, look, councils, you've got to stop writing creeds. Mm -hmm. Right. And so we can have definitions right. of things in the creeds, but not new creeds. Right. So in the Chalcedonian definition, they said, okay, when we talk about Jesus, the Christ mm -hmm. in the creeds, this is what we mean. Yeah. And so the Chalcedon definition is seen as the definitive statement right. of our Christology. Who is Jesus, the right. Christ? Right. Truly. Let me, I want to read a section from the Athanasian creed so people can have an idea of what this what it sounds what, like. what it sounds like and and how hard core these people yes. were like they're really trying to make sure that you understand the trinity here so yeah well in because remember athanasius was like in the fight of his life theologically yeah and so these people believed that there was a lot at stake in mm -hmm. these questions which mm -hmm. is very different than some people that grow up in a pluralistic society right so this is a, this is a section of the athanasian creed it says accordingly there is one father not three fathers there's one son not three sons there's one holy spirit not three holy spirits none in this trinity is before or after none is greater or smaller in their entirety, the three persons are co-eternal and co-equal with each other. So in everything, as was said earlier, the unity in Trinity and the Trinity in unity is to be worshipped. Anyone then who desires to be saved should think thus about the Trinity. Mm -hmm. And that was just one section of it. And they're just like, yeah. this, is, this is how you got to think about it. And, and there's I, a whole list of anathemas. If you yeah. don't believe this, you are yeah. anathema. You are out. Yeah. I... This was helpful for me. I was like, we need people to read this crap because I, I don't like, it, I never it, heard people say this, but I, it our does second, help if you are annoyed at the mm -hmm. mealy mouthed way Christians often talk now Yeah, who seek to appease the culture. And they're like, well, I don't mean this. And I don't want to hurt your feelings. Mm -hmm. Well, you read these guys and they're like, look, you believe yeah. what you want, but, you, but this you're is not, not Christianity. Not, this is Christianity. Yeah. This is not Christianity. Right. Right. And one of the things that's really good about creeds is it's like, this is what we it's believe. very clear. Yeah. The, the, the interesting thing is if you, if we go back, what, four years to our very first podcast that we recorded, the first one that we released and the first one that we recorded are different. We released, can you lose your salvation first, but we recorded what is the Trinity first. Mm -hmm. And it seems like that's the first question that you're going to have theologically. Mm -hmm. And now you're going to wonder about when you become a Christian, that whole thing about there's three persons in if one God. If you accept and, the Christian view, then yeah. that be, is one of the first logical right. Because this is just the question of who is God? Okay, well, it's three persons. Well, then who are these three persons? Well, they're just one God. Well, okay, well, I got to figure that out. Yeah. So we did that. That was the first thing that we talked about on the Optic Theology podcast. Yeah. Which is unique and interesting in Christian faith. Right. Some people say that Hinduism has something like a trinity, but it it isn't anything metaphysically like the biblical trinity. It, yeah. there, there is like a threeness in like creation, destruction, and like in sustaining. But they're not it, like, persons, but, right? Well, well they are, are persons, they? but they're separate. But they're still part of the Brahman. But so are all mm. of the millions and millions of gods part of the Brahman. Yeah. That's, so it's like, so it's, it's not just a trinity. So in yeah. Christianity is unique in the sense that there are three persons in the Godhead, 
There are only three. It can never be more than three. It can never be less than three. Yeah. Like this, and, 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 and there is one God. Right. In Hinduism, right. you could say, are there more than one God? And they'll mm-hmm. say, yes. Yeah. That's so not a problem. People, so We I'm, say, no, there is not more than one God. Right. So the, these, the, these original ones, especially Nicene and Apostles' Creed, were written within a couple, 200 years of Jesus. I mean, within a hundred some years. The, the early version of the Apostles' Creed. And when I say that, the, the latter versions changed barely at all. Yeah. So they're extremely similar. Yeah. So, so yes, basically what we have today, affirming all the same doctrines, yeah. goes back to like 140, they think, which would be Jesus' mm-hmm. disciples. Yeah. So, so just like the gospels were written right. as Jesus' last disciples were dying, mm-hmm. these creeds were written as the disciples of those first disciples were getting the to fathers, where they were dying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, the first of the fathers is what we call it. So... Okay, so the, that's who these people were at these these councils, like the Nicene Council. By the were, time you get to Nicene 325, yeah. right, that's almost 300 years after Jesus right. died and rose. So now you're talking about multiple generations, yeah. Okay, so, so and who are those people? Who's doing, who are those people in these councils? Like, not specifically, so the, but like, the, where the are they coming orthodox from? orthodox person in the Council of Nicaea mm-hmm. um, was Athanasius, though he was not a bishop yet. He was the, so at that he point was they the, had already had bishops and stuff the, set up. Oh yes, oh I didn't yeah. Know there that. were there were what were called monoepiscopates, that is bishops over cities, as wow. early as 120 AD. The the episcopal okay. nature of church government is extremely old. So that's that's where the Catholics get. I mean, oh, yeah. they, they, that's why they're so hard. When yeah, when you stuff. say to a Catholic, like, where do you get this like bishop thing they're from? Like, this what, is crazy. They're like, right. look, Jesus right. disciples disciples set believe this, this is how it should be. So is that that's quick. Yeah, that's really fast. And they were baptizing children. They were baptizing the what? They were baptizing children. So pedo-baptism right. and Episcopal church government wow. is that old. That's the only reason why I don't say it's completely wrong. If it, if it was not that old, if it developed like in the fifth century, I'd be like, look, it's just wrong. Right. You people are wrong. Well, you're just like, there's got to be something but to it's how like, close Literally, it Jesus to, had disciples yeah. and their disciples are did doing this. this. Yeah. It's like, whoa. Well, maybe they, yeah, because you're like, maybe these guys were having conversations with Paul and Peter and John yeah. about this stuff, and they implemented it because Paul, Peter, John, and the apostles were out actually just trying to start churches. They, they, they Within their lifetime, they might not have had the, the time to... Peter and Paul were doing something with the children of Christians. What were they? How do you know that? Where because pastorally, you have to do something. You well, either baptize right, them or you don't right, baptize right. them. Okay, yeah, I was connecting that to baptism. Right, either you say, oh, this is like circumcision and we baptize children, they're part of God's covenant mm-hmm. community. Or you say, when they profess faith, we will baptize them as right. disciples of Jesus. Yeah. It's not both of those things. Yeah. And so Peter and Paul and James and John and Andrew and everybody were doing something and not the other thing. Yeah. And yeah. so their disciples learned that and had hours and hours and hours of conversation with them. They right. knew, definitely knew right. that. And then they set up Episcopal church government mm. and paid a baptism. And 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 they didn't. And that's why I don't think Catholics and Presbyterians and so on are crazy. Well, in the Presbyterian view, from what I know from Annalise, and this is I might botch this a little bit, but is that like they don't necessarily believe that their kids are saved because of baptism. It's more of a dedication rather than a salvation, right? They, they, that they're like they're committing most, their kids to, to like a salvific work or something like that, and the covenantal. It has to do with their covenantal theology that I. If you asked a pres- one of those Presbyterians who baptized their child, mm-hmm. if their child was going was for sure going to go to heaven, whether they ever professed faith in Jesus or not, yeah. they would say, "No, listen. If my kid doesn't profess faith in Jesus or renounces Jesus, they're not. then yes, they're they're not saved. Right. But God gives a covenant, mm-hmm. which is an agreement with a people. Mm-hmm. 
to us as the church as he gave it to Israel. And so when my child is born, they are within that covenant because the, the fundamental the unit of human yeah. life is not the individual. It is the family hmm. and in the clan and the hmm. people. And so my child can be included in the people of God before they can individually profess faith. That is, they are, they are in, not out. Now, does that person have to confirm their faith and grow into an adulthood and take hold of that heritage that they're given? I think most Presbyterians would say, well, well of course. But, the, but, but what, that that's natural and right. normal so that it can be presumed. Mm-hmm. Well, which makes my child sense. is a Christian. That's because, and, and that would mean that if their kid died, that kid would they would probably think that that kid goes to heaven, yes. at least for the time being of uh, for the for that time period of them being within this covenantal people. Yes, they would, and that's different than the historic Catholic view. Or Catholics some, think some the, ba- the babies wouldn't go to heaven, or children wouldn't go to heaven who who weren't historically, baptized? if they weren't from Christian people and weren't baptized, they would at least go to something called limbo. Wow, which is kind of like a purgatory for children. <laughs> It's not hell. But they just made this concept up. Because there's nowhere in scripture that talks about limbo. Or purgatory, correct. Or purgatory. Unless yeah. you're talking about the uh, apocrypha, there's there's some reference Aquinas to... Aquinas and others. Yeah, but even the apocrypha, it's very, very thin. Sure. Um, yeah. So now on, on one level, it's not totally crazy. Well, we're, we should get this when we talk about Hades. Mm-hmm. The the nature of the, the netherworld or the place of non-physical beings... Mm-hmm in the Bible is a little bit more complicated than people want to let on. Okay. You've got Hades, Gehenna, paradise, mm-hmm. Sheol. You, like you've got these references to things and right. some of them are new in the Bible. Mm-hmm. And some of them are the mm-hmm. co-opting of language from other traditions. Like Hades is a Greek concept of the underworld. Yeah. You've got Gehenna, which is a physical place where stuff burns. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a metaphorical statement about something. Right. And so, What's really going on in the netherworld, the world of spirits and souls and so on, I, like when we leave the body and so on? Yeah. It's a little bit more complicated than there's a heaven, there's a hell. You just go to one right away. Right now. But I, like, right. You're saying that for, for the, new co- the new covenant, the new testament, or not the new testament, but the new covenant with Christ. Because when I look at the old testament and the old covenant, it seems like that's a much, that makes a lot more sense to me. Although in the new yeah. testament, it does seem like the teachings seem uh, is like dualistic the right word heaven or hell it's just binary seems like, yeah, binary there's two things, yeah, yeah there's binary so yeah dual, dualistic's not the right word. binary so we should dive into this when we talk about that line i think yeah so okay so, so, so let's just get into to, this, to finish yeah. up on creeds and confessions yeah. right so there are these creeds that are very short mm-hmm. memorizable statements of the faith that come mm-hmm. very early in the church if you don't believe them you're not a christian right, okay? right. but then there are what we sometimes call confessions mm-hmm. which are also used as catechisms a confession is I'm a Lutheran. I'm, I am trying to say how I'm different from these Roman Catholics. Yeah. Right. right. And, and so I'm saying, this is the faith that I confess mm-hmm. and it's longer. It's mm-hmm. much more detailed. Mm-hmm. It's, right. it could, it might be a hundred pages or 200 pages right. or 500 pages. Right. The Westminster catechism is longer. Catechism is quite long. That's why this book is so thick. Right. Half of it's the Westminster right. catechism. So you can put the creeds from the early church on two pages. On one. Oh, on two pages. Yeah. All of them. All, all of them. Yeah. All yeah. four. And yeah. um, there are some other kind of lesser creeds, but you could put all of the significant creeds of the church on a few pages. Right. But like the Westminster Catechism is a couple, at least a couple hundred pages. Yeah. I don't know how many it is, but and like, I've never read through it, but this right. is why so people, the Augsburg confession, which is yeah. a Lutheran one, that's Westminster, that's which is Presbyterian. Yeah. yeah. There's a number of these confessions or catechisms that are designed to teach you the faith more right. completely. I think they, and for us to confess our faith more completely. And those you might disagree with one line or another, and you're not going to hell. 
hmm. even if you're wrong. Yeah. So the, the, the catechism for the Catholic church is probably 700 pages long, but they don't claim that if you disbelieve anything in those right. 700 pages, you're going to hell. I mean, the Augsburg, I just looked at it, the Augsburg confession is 28 articles. So probably mm -hmm. 20 some pages, 30 pages. Yeah. And, and okay. So, and th those are some of the least read things in the Christian church and deserve to be some of the most, the read. most read. I mean, okay. So, so if you're listening to this right because now, these are people who have like worked, worked mm -hmm. super hard on every phrase. Yeah. Every right, single right. phrase. They've been so careful to try and, and get it right. The test of time. It's and not that just these people have, it's everybody's been looking at this for mm -hmm. thousands of years, hundreds of years, so hundreds usually yeah, hundreds for, for most of them. Cause but most of those can longer, larger yeah, confessions. Those came out five other reformation, years ago. Right. Yeah. So um, they're at most 500 years old. Okay. So when you're listening to this, I, I think people should, if they're interested in this stuff, go buy this book, Creed's Confessions and Catechism. Does it have Augs was that Augsburg, it's Westminster? Got, it's got, it's, I can literally look. I mean, Heidelberg. It's, it's got. Uh, Generally speaking, Heidelberg, Augsburg, here. and Westminster are the biggies. Let me tell you what I've got. Apostles' Creed, Nicene's Creed, Athanasian Creed, Cal Chalcedonian. Is that how you say it? Cal uh, Chalcedon or Chalcedon are both okay. Chalcedon definitions, Augsburg Confessions, the Belgic Confessions, the 39 Articles of Religion. That's the, the Church of England, right? Yeah, the Canons of Dort. Westminster Confessions of Faith, the London Baptist Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Westminster Larger Catechism, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Wow. Yeah. That's all the biggies. That's great. It's like 25 bucks or 20 bucks. That's it, really cool. This yeah. is worth it. And it's got a really nice cover. It looks great. So you yeah. should buy this book. I, I just bought it and it's been really fun to read through it. Yeah. Let's, I think if you want to be a substantive Christian, you reading the catechisms and the Bible mm -hmm. is the shortest route to mm -hmm. understand the content. Yeah. It's not the shortest route to holiness. Mm -hmm. But understanding mm -hmm. that content really helps in so many ways. Totally. So, okay, so let's look at this first, the, the Apostles' Creed, right. which, which I read. The The biggest thing that's that I think for most people stick out while reading this, mm -hmm. and it stuck out for me, was that it says that Jesus descends into hell. Yeah. And I felt when I read that while I first started reading this book, I was like, oh, crap, did I just say something I felt super weird about it. Right. And so it set me wrong with God rather than right. With God. Right. Yeah. Right. I was like, I, I loved everything else, but did Jesus descend into hell? I don't know if that's true, but yeah. I knew, I knew, you know, I never done a lot of uh, research on it, but that that was a, a question. Yeah. I had just, for some reason, just believed that evangelicals like us just didn't believe that he went to hell. I, yeah. I don't know why I believe that, but I think it, maybe I just heard it somewhere. Uh, but then, but then Crossway is, is, is very, very conservative, very Protestant, very connected to like Piper and, um, and Gavin Orland and some of, some of these guys who are not so, uh, who, who are in the same, I guess, theological persuasion that I'm in personally. And, and they like said that this book is fine to like release with that. And they, there's no like asterisks next to it or anything like that, you know, which I get it. They're not going to change the Apostles' Creed, but there was nothing said about Jesus mm -hmm. descending into hell. So, yeah, let's... the word. Okay, so first of all, let's clarify the word. What the word hell means. Okay. Yeah. Let's. So there's a number of words that in the ancient world we adopted either Anglo or Germanic words because they're the closest thing in our translations. Yeah. Okay. So hell. Because this is written in what language? When it when the creeds it... are almost all written in Greek, in right? Greek. Until you get into the Latin period of the church, right? Okay. And so. Um, the word hell in the New Testament is usually either the word Gehenna or Hades. Right. Okay. Hades is a borrowed mm -hmm. Greek word for the underworld. Yeah. Gehenna is a is, is a, a place is outside a place of the walls outside of, of the walls Jerusalem. where stuff trash is burned, goes basically. Right? Yeah. Yeah. This is where arguments for universalism will come from. Right. 
Yeah. Right. And so there, the, so the word hell comes from an old English and kind of German because England and Germany are very connected linguistically because of how people conquered, raped and pillaged and assimilated right. with each other. Right. Like the Anglo-Saxons, yeah, which right, basically right. is like the definition of who English is supposed to be. Yeah. They're Germans. Okay. Okay. Like they, okay. the Anglos and the Saxons, yeah. like there is Saxony yeah. in Germany, right? These people came from Germany and migrated right. and sort of like took over most of right. Britannia. And so there were the Britons, the Anglos and the Saxons. They all became England. England. And then, and then England got invaded by the Danes and then the Norwegians and everybody raped and pillaged and interbred. And so the English people like in some ways the most genetically diverse Europeans that there are because they were so, they were, because they were so unsuccessful in a lot of ways and yet became the successful people in the midst of all that hurt, trauma and turmoil. Well, and all, all, all of that was, is as I'm reading, I'm like, I don't know enough about history to, Mm -hmm. because I was like, I was like, okay, the, the, uh, uh, the Apostles Creed and I see in Creed. Okay. And then you get into the Augsburg Confession. And I'm like, what the heck does Germany have to do with this? Right. And why? Like, but then I like, forget. Wait, that's where the Reformation came right, from. Right. Yeah. That, then I forget. That's where. Right. Because you always think of, of, uh, of um, Luther in Rome, you know, like I always would think of him in Rome because he was uh, going against against the Catholic Rome. Church. So he, yeah. so he there, should yeah. be in Rome going against Rome. Right. But no, uh, he only visits Rome once in his whole life and it was before the Reformation. Right. That's not, yeah. And yeah. so, and, so and it was German. a very important part of his life because it disillusioned him with Catholic practice hmm. in an incredible way. When you go to a place and there are brothels just for priests, it can be a little disillusioning, right. you know? Wow. Yeah. So, okay. So wh- wh- where do we start okay, with this? So, anyway, so where this does word this idea come from? Is the Anglo-Germanic word for the underworld. It's right, just like Hades right, in Greek. Right. And so when we were translating into European languages, we just used the Proto-Germanic <laughs> English word for he- for the underworld. Mm-hmm. So the word hell is the same as Hades and Hades just means underworld. And that's that concept is somewhat borrowed. So when you say like, what literally is this? Mm-hmm. The answer is, well, the word itself doesn't tell you and how much is borrowed is a question. Mm-hmm. Okay. What it, so when it says Jesus descended into Hades, Hades tends to be um, different than Gehenna. Mm-hmm. Gehenna is usually the word we think of as hell as a place of irreparable final judgment for the wicked in which all hope is abandoned. Those who enter here to quote Dante, right? That's Gehenna. Gehenna, right? Gehenna is the place of punishment and torment. Hades is the dead underworld. According to uh, that, that comes from Jewish, that has Jewish roots. It has, it has Greek, it has, okay. In almost the entire ancient world, there was a belief in the netherworld where the dead went. Yeah. And it was basically like where you were a shadow of your former self. Okay. And, and this has nothing to do with morality. It was just where they went. It didn't have to do with whether you were saved, not saved, good, bad. Yes. In some of the traditions, there was some differentiation in the netherworld. So in the Roman one, for example, if you were a great warrior, you could go to Elysium, which was like a great, beautiful place, a golden field full of wheat where you ride on horses and blah, 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 that kind of, right. And, but that was only for demigods and incredible heroes. Right. The vast majority of people went to this just general place, the netherworld, right? Mm -hmm. And in many places, some people, and so some people thought of it more atheistically, Mm -hmm. like, Mm It's basically just you cease to exist. Yeah. Other people thought of it as like, like a hell, like a, it's a, right. like you, your life is over. Mm-hmm. 
Like you, you just, there you are. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a couple of chapters in Ezekiel that kind of paint that picture of all the men who brought horror on the earth mm-hmm. and how they all now exist in this place where they're broken down and there's very little left of them. And they have right. no, there's no virility in them anymore. They can't, mm-hmm. they can't attack anybody. They can't conquer anybody. And they're kind of tormented by this loss of themselves, but it right. isn't a place of direct punishment. They're mm-hmm. not like burning or anything. But this is weird. Then there's also the weird verse in the Psalms with David after he slept with Bathsheba, mm-hmm. had a kid, kid dies. Right. Then he, he says that the kid prays that the kid would be in heaven or like no, he didn't even pray that. Yeah, he like it's, it's kind of a cryptic phrase. He says, I will I will go to be with him, but he will not come to me. Yes. And people mm-hmm. assume that that means heaven. heaven. Something like an But maybe yeah. maybe that's not even what he was talking about. Maybe he was talking about this I will go down to the dead like him. Yeah. Yeah. I think that there is this idea that So the context of that passage is David's mourning for the loss of the relationship with this child. Right. And so people infer that the reason David comforts himself with that idea is because he will have a relationship with this person in their fullness, which would require something more than Sheol, more than the world of shades in the underworld. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? The thing is, is that Jesus does not spend time correcting any of these notions. Mm -hmm. He doesn't say, okay, your idea of the underworld is like really weird. That's not what it's really like. Mm -hmm. Jesus doesn't spend time explaining the nature of the spiritual realm. Yeah, right. Hardly at all. He he takes some things for granted. There are angels, demons, there are spirits, there is another Mm -hmm. world of some kind. All that's real. And then he basically tells us what to do in our lives Mm -hmm. so that we can be one with God, know the Father, have eternal life. Mm -hmm. And he depicts that as... A beautiful salvation. So he is saying, you aren't just going to go to the netherworld. Right. Okay. So the issue then is, um, if there is some kind of netherworld, some kind of like holding place, some a a Hades or a Sheol, is it hell? Is it also like a Gehenna? Is it a place of suffering? And and if Jesus goes, what is he doing there? And why would Mm -hmm. we even think that happened? Okay. There's two passages of the Bible that that this is mainly built on. Right. One is in First Peter three eighteen and twenty two. What is Nebo? You have N-I-B-O. I know this is oh. a defi- uh, version of the Bible. Yes. What is that? It is the 1984 version of the NIV. When I have N-I-B-O in my notes, it's the 80, 1984 That's, version. Did you just create that that distinction yeah. yourself? Yeah, I, I had to actually create it in my own Bible program because the NIV won't let you have that version anymore. They only want you to have the... The new one. The new one, right? Which isn't as good. It is different. So part of it is like when you're... If you get saved when you're like... 15 or 16 or 17 or whatever. Yeah. And you, you believe that you want to read the Bible. Like and I you did. read the NLT or something so like I, that. So what I read and right. read and read and read and read over and over and over was the NIV 84. Yeah. So just like in the older generations, the heart language of the Bible is the King James version. Yeah. If they right. say a verse, it's like King James. Cause that's yeah. all there was before 1970 or whatever. Yeah. So I read that 1984 NIV and that is my Bible heart language. If I remember a verse, it's I remember similar. it in those words. So right. when I search on my Bible programs for a verse, you can't find that's it. the wording. Yeah. And so even though the new NIV Bible uses more than 90% of the same wordings, that means every 10 word, 10th word they've changed, Right. which is a lot. Yeah. And so when I search for verses, I can't find them in the new mm-hmm. NIV and I can find them in the old one. And so in my, so I have, to, I had to save the old version in its own file as right. my own Bible translation. Right. And I made a few changes, but not very many. And, and so this, yeah. that's the, that's the translation I often use in these. Okay. Things. Okay. So, so here's, these are the biblical, this right. is where the, the, the creed, the apostles creed is. Whether or not this from, is where it came from, this know. is how it is justified. Okay. 
Right. So in First uh, Peter three eighteen twenty two, for Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. Sounds very evangelical Christian creedy, mm-hmm. right? He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. So he's made alive in the spirit. So now through whom that is through the spirit. Also, he went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Right. Like what the crap? Is and then that that's com- all it says about that. Then it moves on to speak about Noah and baptism and what baptism symbolizes. It doesn't tell us anything more about these souls or spirits in prison. So what it says yeah, is... Yeah, because you go back to the days of Noah and it's like the only pe- there was nobody righteous on earth. So I don't know what this is talking about. The only people that were righteous was Noah and his family. Yeah. Okay. So one way to interpret this is that everybody before Christ goes to Sheol. And, everybody, everybody, not just the Jewish people. Right. Everybody. But there were some who were God's people and who were righteous. And those people need to be liberated from Sheol, which is like a prison. So these are these spirits of the old saints are yeah. like in a prison, meaning a unrealized netherworld. They're no, they're not in paradise yet. Netherworld means people. Here's just what people like, are going to think of when they say netherworld. They're going to think of Minecraft. Okay. So yeah, sorry. The netherworld is like the, an, a, un, a world of unbodied existences. Okay. There's no physical mm-hmm. existence. It's mm-hmm. all spirit, soul, immaterial existence. That's right. what the netherworld is. Right. And so that world is where everybody's soul is, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? So when they call up Samuel's spirit for Saul, that's where they're calling. He comes it from. Up, out up out of the out ground, of the ground. Yeah. because in right. in the in the mythology or the understanding, like Samuel is with everybody else in the other world. He says yeah. to Saul, "You're going to be down here with me tomorrow." Mm-hmm. Meaning Saul's going to die, right. and he's going to the same place as Samuel. And that and that's weird because Saul and Samuel are very different characters, yes. biblically, right? Right. Yeah, Samuel's like a saint, and Saul Saul's is a villain. Terrible. Right. Yeah. And so you would think Saul would go to hell. That and was think Samuel through, would be in heaven. So why would they be in the same place? That was the time. And through why the, can this witch, the witch, call the, up yeah, his spirit? That was the time through the. What was she called? Uh, is that am I the necromant? Is that she, a, she's totally, the one called the witch of Endor? So what is a necromancer? What, what is that? Someone who engages in necromancy, which is the casting of spells. Which is so that's the through same that. Thing. Okay, good. Okay. Yeah, technically, um, necromancy is related to magic in relationship to the dead. So, so this, this is witch a, this engaged a, a, in necromancy to bring up. So, dude that Sam gosh, Samuels, how did they how did that even happen I, I like i used to read that See, as that's a kid. the thing is that it's treated in the bible like it's a thing that can be done i know but at least at least in the old testament i wonder if some of these spiritual realm things have been shifted since the gospel since christ came okay, and yeah died. that's one of the things we're going to get to right. that that when jesus does this if he did he changes the game Physically, metaphysically, he literally changes the nature of the netherworld in right. his death and resurrection. Right. That he, it's no longer a holding place right. until something else happens. The right. something else has happened. Jesus yeah. has died and is now rising from the dead. And in his death, while dead, he goes in the spirit into this netherworld and he changes the game. Right. He's like, this is over. These people are getting out of prison. This is going to These be, people are not. This podcast is going to be categorized as like a. A gaming podcast because <laughs> you keep talking about the netherworld in Minecraft. Yeah. Um, okay. So, so there are these spirits in prison. Now, um, there is a book that's apocryphal called the Book of Enoch. I know, yeah. and it talks about some of the stuff a little bit. And some people think that this is a reference to that book. And and, and the apocrypha, for sure. just for for context, is not. Uh, people might not even know what it is. The Catholics have a. I don't know. What is it? Eight? It's a series of books. I th- How many? I want to say it's as many as 16. Oh, depending, there's a lot. Like there's a couple different groupings. That they believe Because are... there's the Apocrypha and the Pseudepigrapha, and they're different groups. Sure. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And and, they, and the Catholics believe that these are canonized biblical books mm-hmm. 
us as Protestants, they're part of inspired scripture. We don't believe that. And so Correct. They, they, this is, we call this the Apocrypha because they're the extra books of the Bible that the Catholics mm-hmm. believe are, are truly canonical. We don't believe that. And so some of the, some of the theological differences between Protestants and Catholics actually come from that, from, from the, the, they are perpetuated. They're some perpetuated. Of them are perpetuated by it, Yes. Yeah. And so, but these are not, that doesn't mean that people should never read these books. I no, mean, some of them are. No, in fact, the, the book, the, the, uh, the Apocrypha, was considered something like scripture in the church up until the time of the Reformation. Okay. And Luther was like very strongly, no, these are out. Well, he also, but just for people to know, Luther was out on those. He was also out on the book of James. Yes. He was out on some things that we aren't out on. And so. Correct. Yeah. Yes. He did believe the book of James. That's, that's my understanding. I can't tell you exactly where he wrote that, but I've heard numerous people say that was his belief. That he was out on it, that he didn't want that it. That he didn't believe James yeah. should be in the canon because, right. because uh, it, was it seemed as though and... he contradicted the wider apostolic teaching of justification by faith alone. Because right. James literally says you're not justified by faith alone. He literally says his words. Right. James means something slightly different by justification. Right. And he means something significantly different by faith. And there's a chance. And so he's not actually contradicting Paul. Right. And there's a chance that Luther was being overly reactionary to the Catholic church in a way that may have set him off course as he was reading through the book of James and interpreting it. One way to look at Lutheran theology is that Luther was wrong practically, but he was right prophetically. Mm -hmm. The, The Catholic church had gotten the relationship between faith and works off. Yeah. And so Luther comes in and he goes, it's all faith. Now Luther, of course, didn't believe it was literally all faith. He believed that there was an inner working of faith was, and works that they, you have to understand salvation forensically. It's something that happens. It's objective. It comes by faith alone, which is true. Okay. The way the Catholic church had been trying to integrate that with faith had corrupted over times or and so had that works in a lot of ways. So that, yeah. So that works had just like kind of eaten up everything. Right. And so Luther comes in to like blow all that out of there. Right. It's arguable. He just, he went too far. Now right. I'm not saying he did. I'm just saying mm-hmm. there's part of me that does think he went too far that his, his integration of works in Christian salvation yeah. became unbiblical. Right. And James is the one who says now hold on their partner. You can go too far with this. Yeah. And so Luther rebelled against James and where right. I say, no, 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 no. You have to integrate Paul. Right. And justification is by faith alone, right. but you also have to you have to integrate James, which is you are not saved by faith alone apart from works. And there's a way in which the Catholic Church uh, practices the sacraments that, through the Reformation and Protestantism, has been kind of thrown out in a lot of a lot of yes. evangelical churches. And I'm talking about the biblical sacraments. There's arguments on whether or not some mm-hmm. of them are biblical. I'm talking about uh, yeah. uh, baptism and um, I can't even think of the conf- uh, Lord's Supper. Yeah, the Lord's Supper, not confession. The Lord's yeah. Supper. These things that I'm like, these are all great things. We do these at our church, yeah. but we don't do them with the uh, significance it, and reverence that they not do. Sacramentalized. It with. Yeah. yeah. One of the things that I heard Gavin Orland say the other day, who's a Baptist theologian and apologist, mm-hmm. apologist, he said the problem with transubstantiation for Luther, which is that the body and blood of Christ in their substantia, their substance, become literally the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. He said the reason why. Um, Lutherans and other Protestants rejected that was not because it was too spiritualistic, but wasn't spiritual enough hmm. that they thought it was similar to the, to the Aryan controversies. They said, no, what basically, if you think about Jesus, the Christ, right? Jesus is fully man and fully mm-hmm. God. So his body, soul, spirit, mind are all fully human. Right. And the person of this, of God, the second person of the Trinity is fully present. Mm-hmm. And you don't, you don't take out Jesus reason or his soul and mm-hmm. say, well, where a human soul would be, the second person of the Trinity is there, that mm-hmm. spiritual person. Yeah. And so then you have a, no, no, he has a human spiritual soul as Jesus Christ. Yeah. 
and he is the second person in the Trinity. Now, how that works, we don't know. That's why it's tempting to say, well, he probably didn't have a human soul. He that's where the second that's he's the second person of the Trinity. Mm-hmm. That is the soul. Mm-hmm. You see, the objection the Protestant objection at first was you don't erase the substance of the bread mm-hmm. to save the substance of the Christ is mm-hmm. present. They're both present. And I do I I consubstantial. I wonder if Jesus was fully human uh in the fully human pre-fall not post-fall if what was jesus because if i think about a human being in their soul like your your soul is up for grabs and my soul is up for grabs yes there's got to be a way that jesus's soul was not up for grabs Tradi- he was the traditionally perfected human what we call the flesh it's believed was not disordered in the right. person of jesus the christ um However, we there we still believe that he was quote tempted in every way just as we are. That's what I was gonna say. Yeah, that's yeah. Confusing. So, so what whatever is original sin that could incur generational guilt as a member of the human race, mm-hmm. Jesus was free of. Yeah, he's free of original sin. Whatever that means, I don't even know what that means, frankly. But if something <laughs> like that exists, where we participate in the sin of Adam and we are already condemned in our participation in existence in the people of sin, yeah. That did not pre-condemn Jesus so that he couldn't be a sacrifice. Right. So he could have been fully human, perfected. I don't know. The nature of temptation in Jesus is is something of a mystery. Yeah. Because ours is driven by indwelling sin, Mm -hmm. which Jesus did not. So anyway, the point is this. In in communion, in communion, right? Adam and Eve were tempted and they were perfect. You could be tempted without being broken, apparently. Yes. Because that would be also true of Satan and fallen angels. Right. Right. Which they, is a weird thing if you think yeah. about that. So reason alone is sufficient to produce sin. Yeah. Right. So, okay. Now, um, so in that dispute over communion, the, the Lutheran position at first was that transubstantiation was a heresy mm-hmm. because Aquinas was trying to get the presence of Christ into the presence of the bread. And he felt like he had to erase something in the bread. It's substantia, right? Like it's, it's like, it's theoretical breadness becomes the Christ. The substance. Of right. That's right. But what, what Aristotle meant by substance and what the church fathers mean by substance actually aren't the same thing. Okay. Okay. So well, s- substance to the church father is the very thing itself in its practical existence. Okay. Substantia in Aristotle is the idea of the thing itself that animates and inhabits it immaterially. The mm-hmm. accidents is the physical thing itself. This is, uh, so Aristotle had a more metaphysical reality right. and the fathers right. had a so in physical theory, reality. Ca- the Catholic thinker Aqu- Aquinas thought you could take out that substantia from the bread and the bread is still bread mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because the accidents of the bread is the same. It, it's, it is bread, mm-hmm. but you're taking out the metaphysical breadness and saying that is where Christ is present. Mm-hmm. Christ, it, Christ, it becomes Christ in the substantia. Mm-hmm. But it is bred in the accident. Now, mm-hmm. I think that is just a philosophical game that essentially says the exact same thing as consubstantiation, that the bread is simultaneously the body of Christ and that is mystically and metaphysically, and it is still a piece of bread fully both at the same time. It can't be a representation. I mean, is that the well, metaphysical that's where argument? things went. Yeah. So, so Luther was trying to work that out. Yeah. And Zwingli and some others said, no, the Catholic Church is wrong down to the core. 
It took something that Jesus wanted to use as a remembrance where we remember what he did for us. But he did. He didn't and then they just made say, it all metaphysical like Jesus. The thing becomes Jesus Christ. He's like, that was never really his intention. It could have been metaphorical. But the, the, yes. the thing that and I that think. And that gets to do this sometimes called the memorial view. Of it is important to remember, though. These are people will listen sometimes and be like, oh, well, they were just getting nitpicky over things that didn't matter. That's stupid. Jesus literally said, this is this my body, is my body right. and this is my blood. And you don't take Jesus's words. You got to figure out what they actually mean. You don't want to be yeah. wrong about this I mean, the stuff. Great so first, these aren't bad debates. These are about meaningful things. And the great, the first great, um, there were, there were a number of reformation leaders in that first generation and they came together to discuss some mm -hmm. things. And the, one of the sticking points that led to the first real division among them was the Lord's supper. Mm -hmm. And it said that like Luther scratched in the ta into the table, Jesus said, this is my, this is my body. And Zwingli scratched in the table. He, he said, do this in remembrance of me. <laughs> yeah. And that, that they couldn't agree on that. And that led to this disjunction between what became mm. Anabaptists and the Baptist tradition, which was connected to this memorialism that it's a, an act of memory, mm. as opposed to it's a metaphysical act of participating in the vital body of Christ himself mm -hmm. and the participation in his mystical spirit. Mm -hmm. And, those two views, like they seem opposed. Mm -hmm. I don't know. They ha they have to be opposed. But what this is? But this is a different podcast. Like what what does spirituality look like when you believe grace is infused? Mm -hmm. What you might call sacramentalism. We should have like mm -hmm. Scott Cunningham or somebody on. Yeah, to discuss uh, it would that. be interesting to have Greg Allison on, who wrote the uh, what did he write? The Evangelical Assessment of the Catholic Catechism mm -hmm. or whatever. You know who that yeah, guy is? I he, think so. I read his book. I mean, he talks about these things at at at, mm -hmm. at in depth because. He talks about the differences between evangelical theology and and Catholic the Catholic Catechism mm -hmm. and and one of the issues is transubstantiation substantiation and here's a difference here's here's where we agree here's where we don't agree and so okay okay so bring and, up so yeah, let's first bring Peter up three it talks about these soul, spirits in prison that through the Spirit Jesus the Christ preached to them the Spirit I want to clarify the Holy Spirit or the, Jesus's the Spirit, spirit that in verse eighteen who Jesus the Christ was made alive by the Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. Capital. It says, through whom, that through the Holy Spirit, he, Jesus the Christ, went and preached to the spirits, usually smallest, that is, the souls the or the, soul, exist, soul. the netherworld existence of those who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah mm -hmm. while the ark was being built. Nobody really knows what that means. We should name this podcast. Who are those who waited patiently in the... In the yeah. yeah, gosh. So, in one sense, this seems narrower than all of the people in the other world, right? It seems like a very specific group of people in one a period, period of time, time right? Yeah. And so it's hard to figure out exactly what this means. Okay. And so, um, and there's multiple interpretations of it and nobody's sure. And so this as the basis for a Jesus descended into Hades can Hold feel on. a little sketch by itself. There is the end of verse 20 that maybe adds significance, maybe not significant, but it says in it, only a few people, eight and all were saved through water. Right, that's in a, that's the ark. A, that's Noah's ark. So that's ark. Noah and oh, his family. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that, because, that doesn't matter Because the much. thing about yeah. this passage in First Peter is it transitions very quickly from that yeah. phrase, like that you're apparently supposed to know what that means, right, right back into this concept of like... And this water like, symbolizes baptism. Yeah. And how it, yeah. And, yeah. And, and so Peter just assumes that his readers are, they have a comprehensive understanding of verse 19 or... Yeah, I think the main point of verse 19, why it's included there, is that I think Peter's saying that is not your fate. Just like the eight people in the ark passed through the waters of baptism and they escaped that generation where people and souls were put in prison, mm -hmm. that era is over. Baptism now saves you. 
you are not going to go to some netherworld or a Sheol or something. You are saved through the death and resurrection of Christ himself. And Christ has ended that era, right? So, so in that way, it both pushes away from and lends itself to some kind of interpretation mm-hmm. like that. Okay. So this is one of the reasons for why people will say that Jesus descended to into have hell. I right. mean, yeah, this is, he goes right. down, he does whatever he does to the spirits right. who are in this netherworld thing, saves a couple of them from this particular point in time with Noah. We don't really have any idea how this all Or many works. of them, or we have no, or they maybe yeah. none are saved. He just preaches to them and yeah. they hear some, um, some message they don't and they then they otherwise know. And, and now maybe they're just more condemned by it. Right. We don't know. Yeah. He, but, yeah. but this, the thing is, this verse means something. And right. it seems like a reasonable inference that this happened while he was dead in the body. Mm-hmm. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit through whom he did this, uh, apparently through the spirit, but before he was made alive again in the spirit, mm-hmm. he did this. That kind of makes sense. Mm-hmm. And this verse has to mean something. Right. So in theory, right? But one of the things you will note here is if Jesus did descend into hell, into Hades in this way, it wasn't to suffer. Right. It was to act. Okay, and so I think that that's was important. my question because I was like, did Jesus... Some people think he went to hell to further suffer. And there are some pro- American Protestants that have said things like that, some of whom are a little wacky. Yeah. But that's what a lot of people think when they hear that. Well, they're, they're, that's a, in some ways can seem like a logical conclusion. You're right. like, okay... Jesus dies for our sins. He takes on the wrath of God for our sins. Which includes hell. Which so. is which is weird because if you think about that too, when we go to hell, I mean, the Orthodox traditional view is you're there for eternity. So yeah. you would think for Jesus to take on the sins of all mankind, he would have to suffer eternally for our sins. That's obviously not. Unless as the son of God, there's every some, moment of his suffering is eternally valuable. Right. Or yeah, there, right. unless there's a different way of thinking right. about there's it. There's an inverse way of yeah. the calculation because he is infinite. He suffers an infinitesimal right. amount of time, but because we're infinitesimally small creatures who sin right. big, we have to suffer an everlasting amount of time. Right. Or, or yeah. but it is also difficult because he's also f- uh, fully human and that, and that doesn't, his eter, yes. his eternality, is that the right word? Mm-hmm. doesn't chain uh he was a baby he no i think up, that he I th- died i think that part of the paradox of the cross is that jesus the man who is the christ suffers as god yes. which is why his yes. suffering can save us so he, he is not as man it is both he as suffering as a man who is god he suffers both. he suffers both okay and so he suffers as man right in the body physically mm-hmm. as a human in anguish and he suffers as god the second person of the Trinity, and therefore his suffering, his the 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 paying for our sins, is in accordance with his godness as well as his humanness. Yeah. So okay. So the next this the second passage that is sometimes used is Ephesians four verses eight to twelve, which says, "This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men." What what, what says that? What is that referencing? This is why it says. Oh, it's an Old Testament quotation. Is it? Okay. Yeah, I can't remember where it is right now. I'd have to look it up. Um, and then it says in parentheses, well, that's how we translate in English. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower regions of the earth? Or this way it's translated now, the lower earthly regions. Hmm. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists. Okay, so you have this picture of this triumphant figure who ascends on high, which in most Old Testament contexts will mean as king or victorious in a battle. Mm -hmm. He's ascendant. 
And so he, he is celebrating, goes up on a throne. He sits up on that throne mm -hmm. and he leads captives in his train, which means either he has gone and liberated his own countrymen who are captured by another king. And so he leads those captives in his train. That is the space behind him, right? They follow him in his victory, or these are slaves that he has conquered and he leads these captives in his train. I, I'm just like these two guys, Peter and Paul, mm -hmm. they throw this stuff in there that, and then move so quickly on to something else. Like even Paul right here just moves right into right. the assumption. Okay, is, this is what the church is. These are the leaders that you have now. And you're like, hold on. What the heck did you just say? I would have been interested. I wish we had uh, technology back then. It would have been cool to see a Paul, a Paul Peter podcast, you know, the Paul yeah. Peter podcast <laughs> coming to Optive Network. Um, but yeah, I, uh, okay. So, okay. So these are kind of the two verses and there's another one in here, John 20, 17. Um, do you want me to read that or do you want to explain that one? Well, okay. I think that one's important. I think the Ephesians one is important here because um, th that that he descended into the lower regions of the earth or into the mm -hmm. lower earthly regions in, um, in Greek that it's called an, um, the genitive, which is just in English, we would say of. So I would, if I said, um, uh, theology, optic theology podcast is a podcast of Andy and Nick. Okay. Right. What's of mean? It could be of possessive. By, it's, it, it's, it could it, right. Be, it could be authorial. It could, there's a lot of ways to take of. Mm -hmm. It could belong to us. We could belong to it. It could yeah. be, we could own it. We could have created it. We could, we could be right. the people who talk in it. Right. it. It's like, it's of us. It's somehow associated with us. Right. And the context is supposed to show us what that association it's is. It's a loose phrase. It's a loose term. Right. Yeah. And so that he descended into the lower regions that is of the earth. Mm -hmm. Right. It could be the lower regions that the earth possesses. That is the lowest regions of the earth. And yeah. if you, if everybody pictures hell as somehow beneath the earth, which is what they did, at which that is time. what they did at that yeah. time. Right. Then you'd be like, Oh, into hell. Right. Mm -hmm. But if it is the lower regions, it could be what's called a genitive apposition, the lower regions, which is the earth. Right. What are those lower regions? The lower regions in the cosmos. Right. If he was in heaven, comparatively to the where lower he, region right, is right. the earth. So he, he, yeah. So he comes down to the lower regions, which is the earth. And then he wins a victory and leads captives in his trains and gives gift to men. Right. Mm -hmm. he, and then he ascends on high. The ascendancy in verse 10 is clearly the ascendancy to be higher than all the heavens. Right. So it's a, his ascending into heaven right. as the victorious resurrected Christ. Right. And so the lower regions in well, this context fits the earth yeah. even better than Hades, unless you assume some stuff in here. Well, it gets even weirder because the next verse, he actually just didn't go to the heavens. He went higher than all the heavens in order so that he could fill the whole universe. universe right. Because, because in the I, ancient I, world, there were levels of the underworld and there were levels of the heavens. Which is, which is, I think, true. Paul talks about the third heavens, right? At some point. And it he seems does. like there's potentially levels to, to heaven. I don't know. Who knows? Yes. But, one of the things people assume is that the world that we don't understand is pretty simple and clean. And the Bible does not seem to teach that. Yeah. There, I mean, there's angels and there's levels among the angels. Right. There's right. apparently levels among demons. There may be some territorial relationship where, where demons or angels like have certain areas where they, they regard as their like home areas more than others. They hmm. seem to have personalities. They have names. Right. That means they're, they're personal and individual. They're all different from right. each other than they're able to fall away from the holy order of God right. in the way that Satan did in the third of the angels at the time did apparently 
crazy. Right? I mean, yeah, it's uh, it's yeah. And so, and then the netherworld is kind of different. We don't really know what's happening, but there could be like different forms of it. It could have changed after the resurrection of Jesus. We don't really know how. Earth is just like a stupid, dumbed down version of probably what they're doing in the spiritual realm. We probably yeah, look like but people idiots. just go through like there's like well, there's earth and there's heaven and hell, and right. then there's some angels and demons and, and God, right. and that's it. And it's like well. That's all we can no, fit into a movie. it's a lot more complicated right. than that, like yeah. The, that's all you can fit into the right. books and movies. But if, and you, you can know. see this in like medieval paintings where they, they're yeah, like, these paintings yeah. are like so complexified. There's like right. different realms and different yeah. kinds of creatures. And it's like, why would you, do, and like, even like in hell, all the yeah. demons are different creatures. They paint them as like different kinds of monsters. Yeah, some will have a uh, goat heads often. Yeah. yeah, it's weird. Yeah, and like, and I know, I've, I've I mean, read we know stuff, where that comes from. But. I've read stuff by things like exorcists that argue that, that the demons they've dealt with are different in their presentation, their personalities. Mm -hmm. They'll run to the same demon multiple times. And that demon has a very similar personality. Mm. Like there's an individuality. It's like, there's way more going on than we think. And just because Jesus, Jesus makes it simple for us Mm -hmm. doesn't mean that the thing that we don't yet see is clean. It's even in some ways, it's even interesting that obviously the gospel is the most significant uh, P, uh, the most significant thing as far as our relationship to God goes. Mm-hmm. That's the most significant uh, thing that God has right. done. But for the angels and demons, and the, maybe there's other significant things that have happened, and the, they don't maybe don't exist within a time frame, but mm-hmm. within their existence that right. Christ and God are there's doing whole, slash yeah. have done, that might even be that to them more significant than the gospel Yes, to us. Possibly. There's the possibility for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, whole stories we know nothing about. And like, right. I mean, even just the fact there's like these, all these strange creatures in heaven. Yeah. The, ch- the what is it, cherubim? Yeah. Or whatever Ezekiel talks yeah, about, the eyeballs heads and on. stuff I mean, like, like that. So, I mean, how much of that is just like apocalyptically right. weird language for stuff that isn't that right. weird? I Or even if God I used that I don't know that's to, true. That to, may be true, but I think heaven's going to be so much weirder. Right. Than we have right. ever imagined. Right, right, and more expansive and and yes. like more levels, crazy, more things, and more, more diversity. Maybe yeah. stories, and you're going to be able to like mm-hmm. it's it's going to be sick. It's like choose your yeah. own adventure type. In thing. some ways, the, that's like one of the things the progressives and people like that are right about is diversity. I mean, God does love diversity. Right. There's all kinds of different weird right. things. Everything is more complicated than you think. Right. God has a way of making things yeah. very complicated and very simple at the same time. But where, the, where I think where the pro- progressives go wrong is is that they simplify the diversity. It's only diversity of race. It's only diversity of gender. Whereas there's many more complex versions of diversity. There's diversity of intelligence and all these. Hey, I was just trying to throw him a bone. Yeah, I know. We can also like prove that how they're wrong. I, 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 I do appreciate yeah. okay. progressives sometimes. So, okay, so the one of the one of the verses that makes me think that there's something going on here mm-hmm. is John twenty seventeen, mm-hmm. where Jesus at, at, in his resurrected state is interacting with Mary. So mm-hmm. now he the three days have gone by. Mm-hmm. He's now raised from the dead. And he says to Mary, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go and sit to my brothers and tell them that I am returning to my Father and your Father to my God and your God. Hmm. Which is interesting because he's still going to do a bunch of stuff before he ascends into heaven. Mm-hmm. But it seems like whatever happened between his burial and this moment, he has not gone to the presence of the Father. Hmm. Whatever that means. Right. Right. And that makes you think like he was doing something. Right. Right. Like preaching the souls in prison, going to Sheol, right? Like proclaiming his victory in the in the right. lands of the dead, so to speak. Right. I, I don't know what that means, but like so he was, he's been doing something while in the grave, other right. than being with the Father. Mm-hmm. 
Does that make sense? Yeah. And so I don't know what that means. Um, I, I pulled this out of an article, this quotation. In the Old Testament, death is never good. It is something always to be avoided, even by those who know God. By the time of the New Testament, a person like Paul can declare that to die is better that by far hmm. than being alive. The book of Revelation says, blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. Hmm. That there's like, it seems like even in Revelation 14, 13 there, it's like something has changed in what happens to you when you die. Yeah. That isn't the final state. Yeah. yeah well, so that whatever that intermediate state is right. changed yeah. with the death and resurrection of Jesus from what it was right. before to what it is now, well, we know about which will change again right. in the new heavens and the new earth. I think what we know about the gospel, at least at its fundamental core, is that it transcends the, the under, our understanding and interaction with death. That's what it does at its core. I think people don't right. maybe don't think about it. They say it brings new life. That's right. true because it's done something to death. Right. It's it does death it, itself. Right, death itself. Right. We right. tend to think, oh, if death is conquered, that means instead of going to hell, we go to heaven. No, maybe there's just a whole dynamic around death and what happens to people, where you go and how that works, that Jesus has also conquered that. Mm-hmm. And it's more than just punishment. Mm-hmm. It's about lostness and languidness and the loss of identity and to being clumped together into a nothing and a nowhere and right. all of the things bound up in that. Right. And oh, that it's restful, but it's also not. Mm-hmm. And that Jesus in his death and resurrection changed it before the final mm-hmm. heavens and have new heavens and new earth. Yeah. So totally. I think that's really interesting. Okay. There is some biblical counter evidence. Right. Like there's a lot of people in the reform camp who would just be like, this is all bull crap. For example, the, the probably the most direct is, is that Jesus says to one of the thieves on the cross, you're going to be with me in paradise today. That, that to me, I understand the argument. It doesn't seem like that good of an argument, especially because you could find a New Testament passage that says to, to, to God, a year, a year is like a thousand, or a day is like a thousand years, and a year, or whatever the thing oh, is, a thousand years is like a day. Today. Yeah, today? well, yeah. it's like if Jesus is before he's you know it, on well. the cross, mm-hmm. he's in the moment where he's about to, like, dis, to display his glory as God king over all things throughout all time, destroying sin, forgiving people of what they've done. And he looks over at the sinner next to him who they're both facing death. And he's speaking. I look at the context and I'm like, is he speaking as a man? Is he speaking in man terms or is he speaking as here's how we're going to be with me in paradise today because today is going to mean something differently after you die. I, I, I think that this argument could, could be taken a different direction. I don't think it's as uh, mm-hmm. definitive as somebody might want it to be. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I've heard some people say it like that just rules everything out. I, I, I do think the impression left on the hearer is something like Jesus is going to die. They're going to put him in the ground. They're going to put both these guys in the ground. Mm-hmm. But the real them is going to be someplace great. That's far from all this death and crucifixion and injustice and hatred and all that. Yeah, and it's going to happen like today. Like we're going to die. And then we're going to be there. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Um, in Luke 17, I think it is, there's the parable Jesus tells about the rich man, Lazarus, yeah. and the rich man, and then this yeah, guy, Lazarus. Yeah, right. And they both die. And they are in the place of the dead, the netherworld, mm-hmm. right? But they're in different places that are connected. They can actually see each other, but there's a chasm between them. So they're fundamentally separated. Mm-hmm. And one is tormented in a fire. That is, there is, there is a kind of punishment already happening and um, Ab- and the other side is called Abraham's bosom, which is like a place of, of wholesome rest, mm-hmm. but isn't really heaven yet either. Mm-hmm. And th- that's the context of what happens in the parable. Now, here's the problem. It's a parable. Jesus is telling a story. How much are we supposed to say, okay, the story is happening and something Jesus is telling us literally exists mm-hmm. or not? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. 
I think that we we probably can assume something like that existed then that like there was another world that everybody was in. It was neither right. heaven nor hell fully yet, but there still was already a kind of mm-hmm. torment and a kind of rest that was existing, just not in its full form. I mean, you just read the old Testament and it seems like the way that the, the spiritual or metaphysical world and the physical world interact with each other, at least if you're taking it at face value and objectively the way that I think people should read it at first, mm-hmm. you look at like, uh, uh, Nephilim weird verses about the Nephilim and angels having sex with women and, even in back back to Adam and Eve, and then you have like Enoch just walking into heaven. There seemed to be a different uh, situation spiritually back before Christ that we don't fully understand now. And after Christ has come, that that type of stuff isn't the, the spiritual and because they were more physical because they didn't understand the spiritual revelation of Christ. They, they maybe God revealed Himself in physical ways through the spiritual realm. I don't know. And now that we have an understanding of of um, of Christ in, in the spiritual world, now we interact with God almost solely on a spiritual level. Sometimes there's yeah. healings and physical healings and stuff. I, yeah, I don't know. I think if that's... that might be true. I just don't know because, right. like, I I've talked with missionaries who um, ministered in lands where like voodoo was a big deal. Yeah. And the stuff that they said voodoo witch doctors could do was unbelievable. It was like Genesis 6 kind of stuff, like raising people from the dead and like taking control of their bodies and animating them and stuff like that. Now, maybe that's all just clapjack hearsay. Um, One one person I said, said that a witch doctor said, I can do, I can do these like five things with the dead, with everybody who, but, but those who are somehow like connected to Christ, like people who are were truly Christians, people who are holy. Mm. I can't manipulate their their dead selves. Look, man, if but, you want to figure out if you're a Christian, you right. go to this person and see if doctor, they can manipulate you. Yeah. Reanimate you from the dead. Right. Yeah. So, but, but there's a lot of crazy crap that goes on in I the know. world spiritually. And it may be that it's all just superstition. Right. That was the position of the Catholic church for you. Like during the, like all the witch trial years, like mm. 400 years of the Spanish Inquisition, mm. the assumption in every case of witchcraft was superstition. People imagine something's happening. Nothing is happening. It was, it was like a presumptive secularism, Mm -hmm. but they did say that attempting to engage in witchcraft, even if it was superstition was still a sin against your neighbor because you were trying to destroy them, even if you weren't successful at it. Yeah. But they also recognized there was witchcraft. Mm -hmm. In some cases it did exist and it was a real thing. Yeah. But the presumption was superstition. Right. And I, I think that's probably a pretty Christian view. That most of the spiritualistic stuff around us is superstition. I, I, but I agree. There with that. are some deeper spiritual realities that right. some people do tap into, and some of right. them are very evil, and some are like. The, and the, there's the, a more complex relativity to where you are on the globe mm-hmm. and what resources you have. Yeah. yeah. In America, we have all of these resources. And even when you interact with these things, Andy, frankly, like in my experience, you still don't know what happened. No, so dude, I've been involved in exorcisms yeah. where. Uh, people did something that I was very hard to explain. Mm-hmm. Um, something happened that was very hard to explain. Right. And to this day, I can't tell you as an empirical person what happened. I can tell you by faith what I think happened mm-hmm. based on the revelation I was operating on the basis of, but I can't tell you, like I didn't see a spirit leave somebody. I mm-hmm. can't tell you exactly why they were animated the way they were. Right. So I can't prove to you they didn't have some unmedicated radical form of schizophrenia that was acting out yeah. and that somehow there was this, like linguistic psychological gameplay in the exorcism that allowed them to like comfort themselves in such a way as to not act in in, in a way. Like it was almost like a psychological game. I didn't even know I was playing. Mm. 
that that's what some secularist people believe happens in exorcisms, that it's actually a psychological form of primitive therapy that actually can work. Yeah. Um, but, but there's no devil. There's no demon. I believe there is a demon in many cases, mm -hmm. um, but I can't prove it. Even after I engage in the spiritual action, yeah. I can't, I still, it's still beyond empirical verification. Yeah. So I think I've experienced probably four or five exorcisms I've been a part of. And um, like one or two, like, like, like pretty really sure there was something there. And I, I still, I, to this day, it's not like I can hold up the demon and be like, right. see, this is the guy that came out. Right, now. right. Right. And that's what makes people skeptical of it. Yeah. And so right. I, but I do think people have come to me and I've ministered to them and they felt like there was a lot of demonic activity mm -hmm. in their life. Mm -hmm. And I thought that a good bit of that was emotionalistic superstition. Mm -hmm. And in some cases I told them that and they received it very well. In other cases it didn't go well. In some cases we, we took a holistic approach where mm -hmm. I acknowledged there could be demonic activity in their life, but there were also these other things. And there's also, there's just their anxiety right. about uncertainty and mm -hmm. we needed to kind of work all that out together. So I, I guess we're, we need to conclude this. We are like an hour and a half into the, to the podcast and okay. we have to conclude this. Yeah. Um, and maybe we can do more podcast. I mean, there's a lot of different interesting things coming out of this episode about mm -hmm. a lot of different stuff, but yeah, one of the scholars that works closely with logos, Bible software just did like a whole like documentary on the biblical view of the spiritual world. Mm -hmm. Maybe that would be worth watching and doing some review on. Mm -hmm. But so I just, to, I just want to clarify, like to end with, the purpose of this idea that Jesus descended in Hades. Mm -hmm. I think the first thing to recognize is that some people think it's for atonement. Like he went to hell to suffer hell for three days. Yeah. That is a very, very tiny, tiny view in the history of the church. Almost mm -hmm. nobody has believed that. Um, there's a couple heretical charismatic people in America that have said it, but kind of off the hand, I don't think mm -hmm. it's like a deep doctrine. Mm -hmm. um, and almost nobody has believed that the idea that Jesus went to Hades to suffer is probably false. Okay. Okay. The second is, is that it is just a way of saying he was among the dead, mm -hmm. which the, is how then the modern like church of England and other in like Methodist church and stuff will translate it. Cause it's important to remember a, a Bible verse that we didn't bring up here, maybe in Matthew, right? Where Jesus dies. And then after he dies, the dead come out of their graves. Is that in Matthew? Yeah. It, it would make most sense, but uh, it is in Matthew. Yeah. It says, it says that he dies he breathes the last and dies. And then the, the curtain in the temple is torn Veil from top to bottom. And then there's like an earthquake. Right. And in, the sun goes out for three days. Three hours. Or three hours? Hour. It's not that long. No. I thought it was the whole time. No. Oh. No, no, no. It's just, for, it's just for a little bit. And then there's like an earthquake. And then there's like this big release of power, which apparently like raised some old saints from the dead for a little bit. That's the claim in Matthew. What was it? that would have been flipping chaotic. I'm sure people were like going crazy. Yeah. What the heck? Uh-huh. So wow. um that's crazy. Right. So um I think it's important to recognize that um one is so the second thing it can mean one is that he did he go to hell for atonement? No, I think is the answer. Two, did does it just mean among the dead? Right, that he went, he went to Hades, meaning that he was truly dead, and his body went to the grave, and his soul went to Sheol, to yeah. Hades. That he was among the dead spiritually. Yeah. Right. Maybe, maybe mm -hmm. that could be what it could just mean. He was among the dead. He was in the grave. That's it. Yeah. Right. Um, one of the old uh, there's a Logos article that says um, uh, Rufinus, who was one of the people who wrote the earliest Apostles' Creed, or like. 
um, wrote it for us to have today. It says he makes clear that he did not believe Christ literally descended to hell, but rather that the phrase merely meant that he was buried. The Greek form of the creed has Hades, which can mean merely the grave. So like, you know how Sheol in the Old Testament is often just translated the grave mm-hmm. rather than the underworld. Mm-hmm. He says that Hades can mean that too. Mm-hmm. This, this older, this church father. And he's like, mm-hmm. so I just think he descended into Hades means he was buried in the ground in the grave. And, rather, and he that's says where... rather than a place of punishment, thus a more accurate version would be he descended into the grave or he descended to the dead. And this is, you have written here that the Westminster says it, uh, it means he was truly buried and stayed truly dead until the moment of the resurrection. Mm-hmm. That, and I don't know what they mean by truly dead. Not like how that works. Dead as in, not. I think the idea is that if his, if he was, if he he physically died on the cross, right, and his soul or spiritually he was immediately with the Father, yeah, and then later he was raised from the dead. Mm-hmm. Then his human soul did not experience death, not mm-hmm. really, mm-hmm. and um, whatever. Like uh, one of the church fathers, I think it was um, Ignatius said whatever is not assumed is not redeemed. Mm-hmm. Like that, the, it's the fullness of his human experience of death, mm-hmm. which includes being among the dead. Mm-hmm. Now, whether that literally just means his physical body is amidst the grave mm-hmm. where the dead, where dead bodies are, or whether it means he is among the dead mm-hmm. in soul is a little bit open. Um, Grudem is, so that quotation in the Logos article is from one of Grudem's statements. Um, and Grudem's basically arguing relative to that passage in Ephesians that the mm. lower places is the earth where he descended in his incarnation, right. becoming man, right. not where he went after his death to be in hell. Yeah. Um, however, the idea that he fundamentally changed the grave, proclaimed salvation, and preached to those in the prison of the netherworld, and so changed it mm-hmm. fundamentally, mm. I think that could be true. And I think that could be a thing that we don't think about that or seems, care about as modernist probable. people. I think that seems probable. Yeah, I think that that if you wanted to interpret all the data without remainder, mm-hmm. speculating something like that, I think would probably be the best way to take in all the information. The way the, the Roman Catholic Catechism says it is this, that Jesus descended into hell means that Jesus, quote, sojourned in the realm of the dead prior to his resurrection. That's from the Catechism. This is the commentary. Like all men, Jesus experienced mm-hmm. death. And thus his soul joined others in this realm. But as the catechism also says, he descended there as savior and preached the good news to the spirits imprisoned there. First Peter three nineteen is the quotation. Does this mean Jesus descended into hell to deliver the damned? Does it mean Jesus destroyed hell, the hell of damnation? No. Scripture often uses the term hell or Sheol or the Greek Hades to refer to the abode of the dead, which consisted of both the righteous and the unrighteous who were deprived of the vision of God. But this doesn't mean that their experience in that realm was identical. Jesus made clear in this parable and with the poor man in Lazarus, Luke 16, which I quoted from before. Mm -hmm. So what he's saying is, is that Jesus goes and he goes to this place where both the righteous and the wicked are kind of together in this place of the netherworld. And he brings out Mm -hmm. to paradise those who are among the righteous or who are these, these people of faith. So these are the Old Old Testament Testament greats. Besides Enoch. All the, all the saints. Not just the greats, but anybody who believed, believed, who who God counted, credited righteousness to all the people who were, in that sense, saved. Besides Enoch. Because he, he yes, walked in Yes, besides Enoch and Elijah. Dang. Those guys are, they're big. They're big. They're big deal. Okay. Um, yeah, Enoch is the weirdest one because very little is said about him other than he calls on the name of the Lord, then God just takes him. Right. Up. So yeah. it takes. Call on the name of the Lord and you can go. Yeah. Um, the... Okay, so 
So I think it, it means at least Jesus was among the dead. Yeah. Or it means that he went into the realm of the dead, whatever that means, Sheol, Hades, and, and was present, but it seems that he also did something there Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that he did an act of liberating of changing. Mm -hmm. And so I think once people realize it doesn't mean he went there to suffer. It meant he, he went there to destroy death, to continue, to continue the work of the gospel. Yeah. Uh, Cause he says he's going to destroy death and death is not just punishment. Mm -hmm. Hell isn't death. Mm -hmm. Death is the loss of life. It's Mm -hmm. the, it's being gone. Mm -hmm. It's the, in that he undoes in this Mm -hmm. time period. If, if this interpretation is right, I think either one of those is both biblical, Mm -hmm. Christian, Mm -hmm. historic, and fair. Mm -hmm. And so it is okay when you read the apostles creed to say Jesus descended into hell. Yeah. Unless you have a serious conviction about that. Yes. I think the problem is, is that when we say hell, we don't mean Hades. We tend, we think of the place where the damned go for eternal torment and there's no evidence he descended there. The word is Hades. And so we use the word hell as the proto-Germanic, but, but for us, we use the word hell for both Gehenna and Hades. That's one of the things yeah. that's wrong with our English translations there's is we're no using the same word for both. There's yeah. no there's, distinction. There's, there's levels to and the, maybe hell could be the over, overarching. Right. And the church umbrella. fathers would have never said he, de- he descended into Gehenna. Interesting. They would have never said that. Because to them, Gehenna is like I is think, a more low, definite, low, more, yeah. 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 Okay. Now, I think Hades in the Bible in some places essentially means the place of everlasting torment. Yeah. And is rightly called hell. Yeah. But the Hades meant in the creed, I don't think is that definition. Right. Right. So you might see descended into Hades. That's or it. descended into death and just leave it vague. Right. Death meaning the grave, Sheol, mm-hmm. whatever that means. He descended into death. Mm-hmm as prophet and priest to overcome it. Mm-hmm. I think that, I think that is what okay. this means. Yeah. Cool. Okay. So we are coming up to the end of this podcast. Let's, let's do this. Um, we talked about a bunch in this podcast. What we are going to do right now is we're going to do an extra 25, 30 minutes of content uh, Nick and I continuing to talk about creeds, catechisms, confessions. Uh, there's another section here that we didn't even get to that we'll talk about in this. We'll talk about uh, what the apostolic, uh, the, the apostolic creed is talking about. The apostles creed is talking about when it talks about the Catholic, the Holy Catholic church and, or the, what is not to say the Holy Catholic church. Does it say that? I think the Nicene creed says the Holy, Holy Catholic, Catholic and Apostolic Church. Yeah, so we're gonna figure Which out what the same stuff thing. Means. Yeah, and then we're gonna discuss some more stuff. But this is this is the part of the the podcast that is only gonna be available on OptiveNetwork.com on uh, for people who have an exclusive membership uh, to the Optive Network. So this is gonna be a weekly thing where we are gonna do extra content. We're gonna continue to talk about the topics that we're talking about on the regular feed but for those of you who don't have a membership this is where your Mm -hmm. your time with us ends and we don't want that yeah we want you to go to optive network and to get a subscription it's only five dollars and to listen to us talk more (laughs) that's what we want yeah and i think i think being a patron of the kind of media that you believe should exist i think we're going to enter an area of time where media can no longer just be market driven it has to be conviction driven. We have right. to build media institutions that are like churches. They're mm. not things that people just stand on to perform, but are formational communities that help right. us become the kind of people we're meant to be. Kind of like what the universities were meant to be right. at, at a time. Yeah. And that's what we're trying yeah, to do. I mean, you've all you live in would argue all institutions should be that were way. created yeah, right. as 
places where you get formed rather right. than things you just stand on to scream your right. stuff to get right. attention. Right. And now what's happened is all those institutions have become stages people perform on right. rather than communities in which we are right. formed. Right. And I think media is one of those institutions that we mm-hmm. turn to for our formation, mm-hmm. not just places that we turn to for mm-hmm. gossip or hatred or mm-hmm. walk to watch people make a spectacle of themselves. Right. The media is not supposed to be a theater. It's supposed to be a church. Right. Right. And so because of that, um, we want to create media that is mm-hmm. like that. That's formative. It right. is a place where you're going to see people arguing. Right. There will be a performative nature to some of it because right. it'll be artistic. Yeah. But it's not. Yeah. It is not. It's not an echo chamber. It's it, not an yeah, agreeable. It's art, not gladiatorial fighting. Right. What, what draws us to gladiators to see them cut each other's heads off and mm-hmm. bleed mm-hmm. is a different. It taps into something different in the human soul. Is to look right. at something that is truly art that ennobles us and right. changes us. Right. And so, and so that's what we're doing uh, with the Optive Network. If, if you're skeptical, uh, I don't know if I want to give my money to this yet. Get give it give it this month. Check out the website. There's going to be ar- free articles for everybody to read. There's mm-hmm. already a couple up there right now. We're going to put out a lot more within the next week. Um, we're going to try to give as much content as we possibly can. But people have to understand. If you enjoy the content, if you've enjoyed this content, this podcast for the last two or three, four years, and you think this is valuable, you think that it is necessary for yourself, for your friends, for your family, for your church, whatever, this is, we're going to reach a point where we're not going to be able to produce all this stuff unless we have people buying in, Mm -hmm. buying a subscription, giving us money. It's only $5 and I'm doing my best as uh, kind of the acting CEO or whatever of Optive Network. I'm doing my best to make sure that your $5 is going to be absolutely worth it. I'm going and we're trying to expand and get new talent and talk to new people and get new articles and everything. I mean, I'm working all, yeah, the all majority, day on this. The majority of the money that we receive, we're going to reinvest in building the platform. And building it so up, right yeah. now, you're, you're in, your money is right. investing in future content that we hope mm-hmm. can really enrich you. Yeah. So anyways, so go over to OptiveNetwork.com. Uh, and uh, listen to the last 20, 25 minutes of, of this episode, and mm-hmm. we'll see you guys over there. Uh, for, for everybody else, make sure you like, subscribe, share this with your friends, give us a five-star rating, leave a review, and we'll see you guys in the next one. Goodbye.